Everyday people are faced with difficult choices that they have to make, whether in the workplace or not. Today's fun question is, would you rather take a plane, train, or automobile to a holiday destination? Welcome to Impossible Trade-Offs. everyone, Katie Harbath. Welcome back from the holiday week. If you were celebrating Thanksgiving, which we were here in the United States, I spent my time here in DC celebrating Friendsgiving. Um, I'm definitely probably, if I have a choice between plane, train, or automobile, I would choose automobile. I actually even started driving home to Wisconsin during the COVID months. But here for Christmas, I'm actually going to fly home, which pray for me that there aren't too many snowstorms or anything to to delay things. But I very much enjoy just being able to be here and not have to deal with all of the airport craziness uh, this year and take some time to myself to try to start catching up on things and thinking about 2024. Uh, no news intro today because we actually have two interviews for you. We're going to be focusing on the UK elections today. And we're going to be talking with two really great guests. The first is Richard Allen, who was my colleague and at the end of my tenure at Facebook, my manager, Richard was at Meta for 11 years. He ran the policy team in Europe. He also ran a team called Policy Solutions towards the last couple of years of his time there. And he's also a lord in the British Parliament. And so he has been spending a lot of time in his post-Meta years doing that um, and spending a lot of time on the online safety bill that they recently passed. So we'll be talking about all of those great things. And then we're going to talk to Sam Jeffers with Who Targets Me. Who Targets Me is an organization that does a lot of tracking of digital ads online and how campaigns are using them. So Sam and I dive really deep into how campaigns are using tech in the UK. He actually just wrote a really great piece um, a couple of weeks after he and I had this conversation about the role of digital ads um, that he expects to see in the election. And so I'm including that in the show notes. I highly recommend that you read it. And finally, we are going to be having enough podcasts to take us through December 28th. And after that, I'll be taking a little bit of a break. And I want to kind of revamp, look at what's worked, what hasn't worked. So I'm going to be asking some of you for input, all of you for input on that, if you are willing to share it. And so there will be a form with a survey in the show notes that I'll be sending out the next couple of weeks as we go through the rest of these podcasts that we have to get your feedback so we can revamp this and really make it work for you as we go into 2024. I like we have the bells welcoming us to the next episode of Impossible Trade-Offs. I want to welcome Richard Allen, who is joining us fresh off of votes on the floor of, in the UK Parliament. Thanks for joining us, Richard. Yes, yeah. We're, I think we're done now. If there's any more ringing, uh, there might be another bit of ringing saying that we're all due to go home because I think we finished our votes, but it's um, pretty bell sensitive around here. Well, thanks for joining us. Um, I want to talk to you about a ton of things. It's so nice to catch up after not seeing each other since we both left our former employee. Meta than Facebook. But I kind of want to jump in. So one of the goals of my podcast is helping to... There we go. Yeah. Bringing a, is that the go, get to go home? Uh, nope. There's a debate starting a statement now. So. Ah, <laughs> um, no, it's no good. So if people hear ringing throughout the background, it just means things are happening in Parliament. Yeah. One of the things I love about your podcast, Regulate.Tech, is how you help to give people insight into how lobbying and the legislative process and stuff in the UK and EU in particular is different than how they get that in the US. And that's one of the things I'm trying to do with this podcast of helping people to understand a bit more how elections are different because the US is definitely the exception 
versus the role. And so before we jump into some specifics on, on tech and all of that, I'm wondering if you just give our listeners a bit of an overview of the UK governing structure and how elections work. Very glad to. And, and thanks for inviting me on. And, and I guess the, the first thing to say, you know, particularly for US listeners that the UK system, everything you know about the US system, forget it. Uh, when you talk about the UK system, we are like they always say about our language, two people se- separated by a common language. And we're certainly, you know, our democratic systems are like just, just chalk and cheese. And so I guess I think there are sort of four characteristics of the UK system that are worth noting to try and boil it all down. The first, perhaps most important, is it's a sovereign parliament, which basically means that there's no separate constitutional authority. Parliament can do anything. It can pass any law. And the only constraints on parliament are the constraints that parliament itself sets in other laws. Uh, so, so sovereign parliament, absolutely critical. It can pass any law it likes. Nobody else can constrain it, which I think is very different from something like the US Congress. Um, second thing to note is it's bicameral, two chambers, but really, really unbalanced in a very weird way because one of the chambers is elected and, and really is massively dominant. The other chamber is, it's a bit like your, you know, in a way your, your appendix is this kind of vestigial organ and we have like a, a vestigial chamber, uh, the House of Lords, which back in the day was powerful. It, it, uh, you know, in the 19th century, you still had senior members of the government, prime ministers would come from the House of Lords. But basically during, during the 20th century, from the end of the 19th and through the 20th century, it, it, it's had its powers pared away and pared away. So it still has a really important function, which we can go on to discuss, but it, it doesn't really have any power in the true political sense. It's now this sort of vestigial body. Uh, it's appointed, it knows it's appointed, it knows not elected. So uh, sovereign parliament, two chambers, one really powerful and one sort of vestigial body, the House of Lords, where I sit. Um, and then the other two features that are critical to note about election time are it's first past the post. Uh, so again, a lot of parliamentary systems around the world are proportional. Ours is not. It's first past the post, which means that generally speaking, we have a government of one of the two major parties. Occasionally we'll get a coalition, but m- typically it's uh, it's a, a government formed by one or, or the other par- major party winning a majority. Again, most of the, certainly the European systems are proportional and they end up with coalitions. And then the last, last sort of uh, key bit to know is the prime minister is merely the leader of the largest faction in parliament. <laughs> so they are, they're not special. They don't have a, a separate election. They're not chosen by the people. They are the person who happens to command the support of the largest faction in parliament. That person gets to be the prime minister. They're not the head of state. Really important. The, the king is the head of state. They are the first minister of the head of state. The king, so the king's first minister, and the king will always choose the person who is the leader of the biggest faction in parliament. It's sort of like I keep telling Americans with what's happening with the speaker race right now is a little bit of what it's like in terms of picking a, a leader for for parliament. Absolutely, I mean, functionally, it's just like yeah, it's, it's like the speaker of the house of uh, of the house of representatives. We, we have a speaker, but the speaker is not powerful. But the prime minister. Exactly as the speaker in the US 
um, House has to get a majority of their own party, or a majority of the House, but typically that means their own party. The the Prime Minister in the UK, yes, they have to have a majority of their own party. Big difference being that the leader of the party here effectively can get rid of any representative that doesn't support them. <laughs> so there's a kind of level of discipline that you don't have in the US. And again, that, that's um, we can go into the party structure, but that's fundamentally down to the fact that we don't have open primaries that if you want to become a member of parliament for a particular political party, you need to be uh, uh, favoured by the party hierarchy. Otherwise, you won't, get a, you won't get to be the candidate. You can't appeal over the heads of the party to the public. That mechanism is just not there. Well, and that brings me to two of the other key things I wanted to touch on is that in your in the UK elections, you're voting for party. You're not voting for a particular candidate uh, not, or is it does it depend? Not in the UK. So in, in quite a lot of um, European systems, you're voting for a party, a party list in the UK. It is still that you vote for an individual in an individual district. So an individual constituency. It just happens, though, that the only way that you can get the prime minister of the party you want is to vote for their local representative. So, so oh. functionally, you're only voting for an individual. You're never voting. We used to, in the European elections, back when we were in the European Union, we had a, a system there for those elections. And actually, in the Scottish and Welsh elections, uh, there are some elements where you're voting for a party. But in the Westminster election, each constituency, you have four, five, six candidates from different parties and you're voting for the individual. But everybody knows that the only way to get the prime minister you want is to vote for their individual. So, so uh, there's a little bit at the margins and members of parliament like to think that they're special and people are voting for them personally. Uh, and sometimes that's true. And it's certainly true for the smaller parties some of the regional parties, a few individuals, by and large, the public is saying, look, I want a Conservative Prime Minister, I'll vote for whoever the Conservatives put up in my district, or I want a Labour Prime Minister, I'll vote for whoever Labour puts up. That's actually the norm. <laughs> but obviously, as a Member of Parliament, you like to think it's special and they're voting for you, unless you lose, in which case you say, well, it wasn't me, it was just the party, you know, everyone <laughs> hated the Prime Minister, and therefore they voted against me. So the other thing that I find that vexes people, at least in the US, is that there's not necessarily a set election day. Yeah. There's an election has to happen, I think, every five years, at least in your system. But like walk people through that a yeah. little bit in terms of like, because I'm like, the UK might go to the election at the end of 2024, but they don't have to till January 2025. And people are like, what do you mean you don't have an election yeah. date for me? I mean, this this goes back to this question of the sovereign parliament. We, we actually tried in the 2010 coalition government, we implemented something called the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, which tried to fix parliaments at five years long. But of course, um, you know, if a majority of members of parliament uh, vote to dissolve the parliament at any point in time, you have to have an election. So it, it kind of was meaningless. It's sort of, unless there is some separate constitutional framework that protects the length of the parliament, you know, the parliament itself can dissolve itself at any point. And if parliament dissolves itself and says, we refuse to appoint a new prime minister, then you have to, you have to have an election. So again, it varies. There are other parliamentary systems which have a lot more checks and balances in place to try and make uh, their parliament go the full length. But really, you know, in a, in a classic parliamentary system, if a majority of members of that parliament want an election, i.e. if the governing party wants an election, if they, then they choose that. They just they sort of commit political suicide. Effectively, they say, 
we're not going to we're not going to carry on and then you have to have an election so it's almost impossible to force it even though as i say for a period of time at least on paper this was my party favors fixed terms because we think the variable term gives too much power to the party and government but as i say we, we had it i think we had one election under the fixed term parliaments act and then then the next one who came in just went nah don't like it we'll rip it up <laughs> you know and because parliament's sovereign they can rip it up uh, and now we're back to basically the government gets to decide when it wants the next election except we have this backstop of 5 years and again that's because several centuries ago we passed a law saying it would be no longer than 5 years um in theory that could be ripped up as well but but in practice no one's going to actually do that so we we keep the 5 year backstop so it's not just elections that are different it's also how legislation is drafted and debated and everything like that, because um, I love the way that you put it in. And I'll link to this podcast episode where you go into it more in depth. But like if lobbyists are coming in once it's been introduced to parliament or whatever that system is, you're like, you're coming into this way too late. Yeah. Um, can you kind of give us an overview a bit of like how that process works? Yeah. I mean, again, very different. And I used to try and get my head around the American system where you have lots and lots of bills proposed by individual members all the time. And you've got to figure out which ones are serious. Well, here, you know, what's serious that next week, the king will come to parliament. He'll, he'll read out or next week, I saw first week of November and he will come and he'll read out the king's speech. And the king's speech says, this year, my government will introduce legislation to do A, B, C, D, and E. And, and essentially every year there will be approximately sort of 20 to 25 pieces of legislation they all come from the government uh, and they will all pass and so it's not it's not that you throw a load of random things in individual members can there are some opportunities for them to do stuff at the margins but but basically it's the 20 to 25 bills that the government introduces that are the real action and those bills have been written by professional civil servants they're not written by members of parliament they'll often be two, three, four years in the making. So somebody has decided that they want to do something on, on online safety. We'll come on to that. That process took four years from some politicians saying, can I have a bill on online safety to us actually getting it through? And most of the time, the work is being done by civil servants working with interested groups and regulators to get something that is technically correct. And that is the norm for British legislation. A couple of exceptions. So one is individual members can do little things at the margins, but nothing significant. Uh, I once passed a private member's bill on stopping people dealing in looted archaeological artifacts. Right? Uh, that's the sort of thing that you can do, but nothing like like really core. And then occasionally there's legislation that's knee-jerk legislation. There's a crisis and they want to bill next week. Uh, and there's a bit of margin for that. Those are usually terrible bills, <laughs> the ones that they do in a week. Um, but the norm are these long-term ones written by professional civil servants. And, and weirdly, you, you know, the, the, the party element uh, is fascinating that there will be civil servants right now who are looking at what the Labour Party, who are not in power, say they want to do. And they will be writing or thinking about what the legislation would look like if the Labour Party wins next year and comes into power. So a year or two ahead of the Labour Party coming into power, 
the the professionals are already thinking about what that legislation would actually look like as a technical matter uh, so that they can get a head start and then into a process of a couple of years to, to actually make it happen. And so you were, you mentioned the online safety bill, um, which is a pretty important bill, you know, to the tech industry that, that the UK just passed. Can you tell us more about what that covers and how that might impact the tech industry, particularly too, as we're going into an election potential election for the UK when it'll be in, implemented? Yeah. So, so the, the legislation essentially, I mean, it's a reaction to this idea that, and, and again, particularly for people, I think, outside the US, that we don't like American tech company executives making all the decisions about online life for people in our country. Therefore, we are now going to bring those tech companies. And again, it's, it is American ones that they have top of mind. It's the big, big, uh, GAFAM or whatever acronyms you want to use, but the Facebooks and the Googles and the, and the, um, alphabets and so on that they want to bring into, into scope. And the way that they are doing that is they're getting the UK communications regulator body called Ofcom. We're giving Ofcom a lot of powers to make uh, tech companies do risk assessments of the risk of their services, particularly to children, but not exclusively to children, uh, to share those risk assessments with the regulator, show what they're doing to mitigate the risk, and the regulator can order them to do all kinds of things if the regulator is unhappy and thinks that they're they're not uh, bringing their services into line. So it basically is that shift of power to say, Tech companies, you can't decide important things on your own. Uh, and they're really things to do with uh, what they call a schedule of harms. But it's the stuff you might imagine, you know, encouragement to suicide, hate speech, uh, uh, violence and aggression towards individuals, uh, harassment, all of those kind of things you, you might imagine are in there. That's the core of the bill. And Ofcom will now be able to tell tech companies how to police that content. We had a debate about um, election-related and fake news-type issues, but those are largely not in scope for the bill, actually. Um, and I think that's sensible. They're they're actually quite difficult. Where the harm is universally recognised, so something like you know, child sexual abuse, there's nobody sane, I think, would would argue that's not harmful. So there's no dispute. And so it's actually quite straightforward to say, Ofcom, make sure the platforms get rid of all the child sexual abuse material. When you move into other areas like fake news, there, it's very, very contentious. And having an independent regulator trying to police that is difficult. So, so what we've ended up saying is, look, Ofcom should you know, carry out reviews of the presence of fake news and things like that. They should, they should you know, convene expert groups. They should work with the platforms, but not, not wade straight into telling them what to do. So I think for the election, this new framework will only have impact on the margins. And the margins are, you know, where people are, for example, engaging in illegal hate speech as part of the election. So if somebody were, you know, you're directing really vicious racist abuse at a candidate, that might get caught up because vicious racist abuse generally is caught up. There's some provisions around sort of political speech, but but again, at the margins. But by and large, the, the regulator will not be, I think, policing the election. Yeah, that's going to be interesting from a perception standpoint and confusion that people are going to be hearing what's happening with the DSA and with the EU is doing to to try to hold tech companies accountable. There'll be the debate in the US and elsewhere all around the world. And so I have a feeling it's going to be hard for people to parse out the nuances of what regulations and what countries 
are supposed to hold the tech companies accountable for what, at least when it comes to the elections, yeah, the elections related stuff. Yeah, I think it's overall, I mean, generally this stuff is uh, much, much harder than people think it is. And there's, uh, there's always trade-offs uh, uh, in this stuff. And, and you know, um, you have to decide if somebody's directing really vicious offensive speech at a politician, you, you have a choice. You either allow the speech and then some people will say you're, you're not uh, enforcing on safety grounds and complain, or you act against the speech and some people will say you're interfering with politics and preventing legitimate political speech. You, you, there isn't a world in which you can both act and not act on the same content. So you've got to, you've got to make a decision. I mean, it's clear that um, governments have not been comfortable with platforms making those decisions. Uh, now they're taking some of that on themselves. The decisions won't get any easier. And, um, and you might find, yeah, they'll be coming to different views. I mean, the, the US, I think, is, is generally in the hands-off, uh, uh, at least government hands-off. And I know that you've got law cases going on precisely on this question about whether you know, government should say anything to social media companies. I think you've probably got the EU being much more hands-on generally. But again, there's variations across the EU. Um, and some countries are much more pro-free speech than others within the EU. But broadly speaking, I think there's a bigger appetite for intervention. And then the UK somewhere in the middle. <laughs> we're, we're actually, honestly, we're facing in both directions. We're both saying, get rid of all this nasty stuff and at the same time, pr- protect all the political speech. And, and I think... You know, the rubber's going to hit the road at some point. Uh, well, that's why I called the podcast Impossible Trade-Offs, because yeah. it just seems to be a lot of what we handle. And one of the things that I loved about when we both worked at Facebook was the debates that we had uh, with each other, with others, um, uh, across the company, across others about some of these really hard problems. And I'm just curious, what are some of the toughest trade-offs you had to deal with at Facebook that people might not realize at first are tough? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the really, um, really difficult ones is around working with law enforcement agencies. As well, they say, because the instinctive tech company response is, you know, law enforcement agencies are oppressive. The internet is this free space. And, and they have in mind, I think, the sort of notion of some oppressive regime trying to seek information about political dissidents. And that, and so the instinct is then to go, no, you know, don't deal, whatever you do, tr- try and push law enforcement agencies away as far as possible. And I remember we were both at Facebook when they took over WhatsApp, for example, and that was very much, I think, WhatsApp's attitude. They were sort of rooted in that, you know, say no to government approach. And yet when you start sort of digging away at it, and you, if you take a very strong human rights-based approach, yeah, certainly you should be saying no to governments when they're wanting information on political dissidents. But what happens when they want information on somebody who is a real danger to other people for some reason? And and when you know that, <laughs> then you should. I think that the sort of human rights correct response is actually to provide the data because by not acting in a way you're failing to prevent a serious abuse when that could happen. And so you end up in this, you know, again, a, a sort of black and white world. The classic world is no, tech companies should just say no to governments. And then, you know, particularly some governments, uh, the governments of country X is always bad. Well, actually, 
within country X, there are some people who are, by my standards or your standards, bad. They're trying to suppress peace. But there may be some other police units in that same country that are really good child protection units that are just trying to save kids from something awful. And so you've got to have this much, much more nuanced approach, I think, if you're going to take a human rights values-based approach. So you should be refusing to hand things over when you know that that will lead to human rights abuse. But equally, you shouldn't be refusing when your refusal may sort of interfere with a law enforcement agency trying to prevent an abuse. So that's that's my work. It's just come up again in the online safety bill, yeah. and, you know, around that. And I think I think these very nuanced, not just country by country, but request by request based approaches are actually the only ones that, to me, stand up if you're serious about protecting human rights on 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 your platform. Yeah, which is really hard to scale, right? Really when that, when scale. that's coming, really hard through. to scale. Yeah, because you can't just draw a blanket rule uh, and say, yeah, always, yeah, yes, always, no, and it, it gets more and more micro the more you dig into it, and it requires a lot of judgment by individual humans. Well, the last question I want to ask you is one that's been on top of mind for me, and I was listening to your recent podcast about the challenge public policy teams have in quitting or pivoting their strategies, and you actually mentioned the evolution of of my team where we were working with politicians and governments and thought that it would be good to help politicians be on the platform. And then we saw the downside of that. And so as we go into this year of elections, a lot is being discussed as to if news and politics should even be on online platforms like Facebook and threads. And so I, I'm just curious your thoughts on this a little bit more. And if you are still at the company, if you think this pivot is right, and if so, then where should politics and news live? And you, I know you're not going to, I'm not asking you to have yeah. all the answers. I'm just kind of curious as you were talking about that. I'm like, Oh, I want to ask Richard this. And yeah. I conveniently had you on the podcast. Um, I, I mean, I think, it, I think in a way it's right. You so the new, so the policy issue, we both live that, you know, we went out, I think very good faith to say, um, uh, social media is going to be great for politics. And, and the company really lent into it and invested a lot. And I think that was done sincerely but then you're right and you know again we've lived through this the sort of backlash to say this is inappropriate the companies have too much influence they're too engaged we're suspicious and, that, and those criticisms have come from left and right so they've come from all over um new uh, news i think actually you're right to, to identify as another really difficult issue the, the companies were getting slammed for their impact on the news ecosystem and their response I think was, again, a similar sort of instinctive response to say, well, we'll just invest in the news ecosystem and we'll, we'll, we'll sort of have lots of programs and things like that. I don't think they've worked. And I don't think they've worked because there is a fundamental sort of market problem, which is that, um, you know, people, when given a broader choice, See, very few of them seem interested in a lot of the classic news media product. Uh, and those people who are interested are already interested, they're already consuming it. But when you get into the social media space, um, you know, as I say, where there's this massive world of choice, pe people aren't going towards that classic news media product for whatever reason. That's the real issue that needs addressing. And I think what the tech companies have done, again, they are, they are in a sense sort of quitting too late because now, now it, it looks worse than if they'd said at the beginning – Hey, the problem is, you know, that people don't want to consume your product. Let's talk about that. Instead, what they said was, we're going to help you and our platforms are going to help your product. And they haven't. And now they're pulling back. And that actually makes it look like they're, they're taking something away that they gave. So that same dynamic is, is in play that they, they invest and now they've got to pivot away. And by doing it too late, you actually make things worse for yourself. 
Um, and, and in a way, it's time that's been wasted on having the really fundamental question, sort of conversation, which is, you know, who pays for high quality news product, both the production of it and the distribution of it? How do you need? How do you distribute it in a you know world of multiple channels and so on? Um, you know, those kind of questions are the really big questions. Not, you know, can you stick it on a new tab or bung people a few? you know, dollars for for the content they're producing, which is sort of where it's been going for years. So I think it is a really big question. And, and you know, when the companies withdraw from providing support for news media, the news media have a great megaphone for attacking the companies. So now they, they end up in that, that problem. But it needs addressing. And actually, as a citizen, you know, these questions of where people get uh, high quality, accurate information really matter to me. But what I think is equally clear is just kind of shoving it out through social media has not been the answer. There's been an interesting collection of studies that are showing like with TikTok, for instance, that more Gen Zers are going to TikTok for breaking news, but they're not going to it to get breaking news from your traditional news sources. They're getting it from news influencers who are not journalists, who are sort of like using traditional news coverage and stuff to do commentary on top of it. And it was just sort of it happened over this past weekend where I was like, it's there. It just doesn't look the same way that people are used to seeing it. And so us kind of grappling with that too and what that looks like. It's just going to be really interesting over this year that has already started being very a new, very newsy fall going into a very newsy election year exactly. um, is going to be fascinating to watch. I think you're exactly right. And yeah, and it, that sort of begs the question of whether the, the, the conversation should be with those new influencers to say, how do you inject journalistic standards into their work? as opposed to spending all your time with the old uh, community. Yeah. But again, but even by saying that, I'm probably going to arouse a lot of anger. But but if you if your <laughs> if your goal is to make sure that the people who use TikTok and uh, uh, are getting high quality news, it seems to me that might be the lighter lift is to work with the people they're already listening to to help them understand journalism yeah. values and use them. All right. Well, Richard, I've already taken enough of your time. Thank you so much for joining me um, while you were doing votes um, in Parliament. I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope to have you back again. Pleasure talking to you, Katie. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. I want to welcome Sam Jeffers from Who Targets Me for our second interview about All Things UK. Sam, thanks so much for joining me. Hi. Yeah. Thanks, Katie. Um, let's start by just you giving us a little bit more about your background and what Who Targets Me does. Yeah, sure. So um, so we started back in 2017 when, I mean, maybe there were the beginnings of some conversations about what political advertising transparency might look like on the internet, but it, it didn't really exist at that point, right? There weren't any ad libraries. There wasn't much of a demand uh, for it. And um, I've been working for the few years before that for a, a digital agency called Blue State Digital that did a lot of political campaigns in the in the US and, and Europe. Uh, you know, it's sort of best known for work on it on the two Obama campaigns. And so like, I think we as a as a company had this idea about grassroots mobilization, you know, the internet as this kind of force for good and this real optimistic sense of what you could do with politics and and and, and online. And, you know, we, we did start to observe like through 2013, 14 as like organic reach would start to, you know, decrease and we would we were buying Facebook ads for the first time. And, you know, then you begin to see all that sort of polarization in American politics really beginning to to get going with the, the Trump versus Hillary stuff through the, the 2015, 2016 kind of campaigns and, and that divisiveness. And so by the time you get to 2017 and you've had the Trump election and the Brexit referendum and everyone talking about these like very unexpected political events, um, that, you know, the role of social media in these, potentially the role of ads in these as well. You know, by that point, 
when the UK called the general election in 2017, we were like, well, how do we crowdsource this stuff? How do we actually understand and create transparency where none really exists? And so we we built a browser extension after kind of meeting a couple of people at an election tech meet up in London. And um, and it began. So, you know, we, we found ourselves, you know, half a week later on the front page of the Guardian newspaper and 15,000 people crowdsourcing ad data for us. And it really began from there. And then that really started to sharpen the kind of things we were thinking about in terms of what, what transparency was actually needed, you know, what how we might push for that as an advocacy organization, what other tools should be built, those sorts of things. So, so yeah, that, that's been the, the, the kind of genesis of, of who targets me. And since then, you know, we've continued tracking elections wherever we can, um, you know, tens and tens of elections at this point. We're building a bunch of new tools that track spending and targeting and this sort of stuff, trying to really build an, another layer on top of some of the transparency tools that now um, exist. And, and really, the goal is to push that as far as we can go, you know, as far as we can go to really be able to try and read uh, political campaigns in as close to real time as we can. You know, th- th- their advertising reveals something about their inner inner soul that we can use to uh, you know, increase, I suppose, accountability uh, in the system as a whole. And are you focused mostly on the UK and the EU and elections there? Are you also doing US, other places? Yeah, I mean, we've built the tools that we've built to be as universal as possible. So we have we have one research project that includes the US. Um, we are currently beginning to look forward to Indian elections next year, and we have a small project beginning uh, there. We've done a lot of EU stuff. But yeah, the, 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 the kind of one of the latest tools we built is a thing called Trends, where we're really trying to take the sort of transparency spending data and, and build that out for as many countries as possible. So we now have a tracker that will effectively track online ad spending by political parties in any country where we've got it set up. So we, we had it for the New Zealand election recently and the Australian uh, referendum on the what they call the, vo- the voice referendum there. We've had it uh, running for the Polish election and so on. So basically that just requires us to keep a bunch of data labeled and then all sorts of... Um, charts and dashboards and all sorts of other things will kind of flow off the back of that. That's amazing. And then are you only focused on platforms that do have the ad transparency tools? Or are you also looking at like streaming platforms or podcasting or or other places? Well, so that is an interesting thing about about I think the rest of the rest of the world, as it were, is that, you know, the US political ad market is obviously so incredibly developed. And, you know, everyone wants a little piece of the election cycle if they can, if they can reasonably get it right without it causing them too many problems. The rest of the world is not so interested in those sorts of things. So that, you know, while Twitter, for example, now allows political ads again, and, and will probably allow those in, in Europe and, and, and the UK for the elections there next year, you know, there aren't lots of people buying ads on podcasts or, you know, streaming TV, for example, right? There's, you know, Netflix and advertising is not a thing here yet. Um, And I would be surprised uh, if you get political parties buying large quantities of that. So um, yeah, the the US is this place where, you know, there's always this huge, you know, so many more platforms, so many more places to buy ads, the rest of the world, it's it's a bit less developed. And so the focus is, it's easier to say, okay, we're at least covering 90% of the market when we look at Facebook and YouTube and Google, basically. Before we kind of jump into today and stuff like that, can we go back in history a little bit? And can you share a bit about where tech and social media really started to play a role in campaigning in not just the UK, but maybe all of Europe? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think the the, the, the the funny thing, at least when it first really got going in Europe, is that you always felt like you were one electoral cycle behind the US. So, you know, Obama 2008 really brings the internet as a campaigning tool to the forefront of of campaigns 
mind you know we 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 should do some of this stuff how are we going to do it well and that's the 2012 one right in 2008 in london okay. like blue state opened in london in 2008 and are trying to for example talk to the labor party for the 2010 election in the uk and getting kind of kind of some interest but not really that sense oh we're going to invest a load of money in this at this time right we're not going to build out big permanent team of people who can create content and build stuff and write write great email programs and all that sort of stuff like it it, it was like there was interest, you would get the meetings, but it hadn't really turned into something that people would really invest in. After 2012, you know, that's two elections where, you know, Obama had used the internet very well to, to win twice. And um, yeah, you, you certainly by 2015 in London, you know, the, the, the Tories were much better at it. Labour was much better at that kind of Obama style of campaigning, you know, very kind of email driven and, you know, sign up and uh, do, do grassrootsy type things, quite good at the grassroots fundraising as well but but it hadn't really formed this idea like I, I don't think people had really got this sense until 2015 that you could you could actually win elections with it it was always a kind of nice to have it made you look modern uh you know like you you could be more polished uh online than you you previously would have been and so i think i think 2015 is the first election where you know particularly the conservative party looked at the country and the electoral map of britain and decided that there were a bunch of places where it thought it could win uh it tested a bunch of messages it ran ads against its then coalition partner um which i think was a sort of slightly unexpected move on their part and you know i think could reasonably claim after winning that general election, um, that the internet had been a real help in in the outcome for them. You know, they'd, they'd hired people like Jim Messina and stuff like that to come over and, and give them some advice. So, you know, there, 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 there was a sense by then that, you know, you had to you had to take it very seriously. Um, and, it, and it kept kind of flip-flopping back and forward. So by 2017, uh, you know, Labour had realised that it had sort of lost the lost the battle in, in 2015. And, and, and you know, then at least matched uh, the Tories from a kind of budget perspective in terms of how much money they were spending, but also had a much more evolved kind of organic game. They had a lot more friends online, basically, who would say good things about them and, you know, things that would go viral and were much better at making video and all of those sorts of things. So I think in 2017, you have another election where maybe the Tories are looking at Labour and thinking, oh, that was that was closer than we expected as a result. And they were much better at the internet than we expected as well. And then it flips flops back again. By 2019, a lot of that energy is drained away from the Labour Party. Boris Johnson is the leader of the Tory party. You know, they are trying some new things and 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 being different. So it, it's still, you know, at the point where by comparison to even a, you know, even maybe even a like house, you know, a competitive house race in the US, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, UK campaigning is still fairly small, small beer. Um, but it's, it, you know, it's a lot more part of the furniture, you know, that the, the parties have permanent teams doing it. They're thinking quite far ahead, certainly that, you know, with an election next year, they think quite far ahead into what they're expecting to happen next time around and setting their teams up accordingly. Um, so, you know, the history has been slow. And I, I would say that, you know, uh, you know, when I said at the beginning, you know, the, the UK or Europe is always a cycle behind the US. If, you know, I suspect that that will become two, three, four cycles over time, just simply because the the financial difference in capacity between campaigns in the US and everywhere else is is so great. And kind of speaking of that, I really love your Substack full disclosure, which we'll link to in the show notes. And you've been tracking a lot about what campaigns are doing online from like political ads to use of AI. I'm curious what some of the trends are that you're seeing. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um, I think there's a kind of sense of like, there is this big resource gap, right? I mean, you know, one of the things that, you know, I, I was over in the US last year and met some people who I guess are now 
working on the Biden re-election campaign. And, you know, they're sort of, you know, asking them, what are you going to do? And sort of raise their eyebrows and more like, what are we not going to do? You know, we, we, we have the resources to do everything. And, um, you know, it's almost like we don't really need digital strategy because, you know, digital is the strategy and we will do everything we possibly can. Whereas I think in the in the UK, you have you have to choose a lot more, right? Financially, you're so constrained by some of the rules, uh, you know, what, what you can fundraise and all the rest of it. So you're having to really pick pick the things that you you want to do. So often what you see is people doing things that feel new and you think, okay, this is going to be a, a trend. They're going to keep doing it. And then they do it once and uh, and it kind of goes away again. And I think, you know, some of that is, you know, some of that may may in the end actually turn into something. So for example, the Labour Party just uh, won a, like a by-election, right? A sort of local, you know, a local special election in the, uh, uh, in the sort of just north of London. And their candidate there ran, you know, grassroots meetings that he'd organized online. You know, I come come and meet me at the library. I'm going to do a Q&A. You know, this this stuff's actually not terribly common in, in, in British politics, but they used the internet to organize it. They ran ads to promote it. They, you know, they played back the, you know, video of, you know, did the the, the, the best questions and, and, and sort of tried to do more of an engagement piece. And it, and it felt like quite a nice full circle in a way, you know, back to maybe some of that kind of more optimistic version of the internet and campaigning that you might have seen in, in sort of 2008, 2012 uh, era. So I, I, I maybe, I wouldn't say it's a trend, but I'm quite optimistic that, that some people over the next year or so will, will campaign in what, what I sort of consider to be the right way. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think there's a lot of you know, we still have a very vibrant media in the UK and people pay a lot of attention often to quite small things, small things that wouldn't raise an eyebrow in American campaigns where, you know, someone does a bad tweet, you know, and it <laughs> ends up, you know, making news for several days. I mean, the Labour Party, again, ran a ran a couple of, you know, tweets basically with some graphics attached that, that um, made some, you know, assertions about effectively like Rishi Sunak being a, uh, you know, sort of allowing paedophiles to get out of jail, you know, basically, or not, not you know, not being punished uh, properly. It was a, it was an eight-day news story. Uh, it was a huge story about ethics in campaigning. It was a huge story about truth in advertising. Uh, and so, I think, you know, at the same time, British campaigns are very sensitive about about being caught doing bad things on the internet because the internet is still, in a way, seen as a sort of separate thing, and it's not just part of campaigning. It's not routine. It's not seen as something that just happens day in day out. There's still something slightly sort of esoteric and scary and unusual about it. And so, I think that sort of sense of like, what are you going to experiment with? How far are you going to go? How hard are you going to go after your opponents and so on? And people are still quite constrained. So, um, yeah, the, like trends, you know, probably the biggest of the lot is is actually outside of political parties and, and campaigns, which is which is the growth of the political podcaster in the UK. Obviously everywhere has these, but the you know the UK has big ex-politicians now running podcasts. And I think those are going to be places where people go for a really big audience to talk about their issues, to talk about why they're the right people to, you know, lead the country and all the rest of it. I think I think those are kind of the power of those from a kind of media perspective, I think is going to be really interesting over the next year. Yeah, I agree with you. I'm seeing the same thing in the U.S. because a lot of the Republican candidates for president, as well as folks like RFK, are really doing the podcast circuit and, and going on there as guests and spending that time. And you're even seeing it with like, you know, CEOs like 
Mark and others are spending hours and hours of time with these with podcasters um, to get information out versus talking to to traditional press. So I find that really interesting. We talked a little bit about streaming services, but what about TikTok? Is TikTok used a lot by candidates? Is it a place that you know here in the states we all say you know we're seeing that Gen Z is going there for breaking news? What does that look like um, in the UK? Yeah, I mean it's a really interesting one. I was. I was talking with them um, uh, for the newsletter, actually, uh, with Teddy Goff, who, you know, ran the yeah. digital for Obama in, in 2012. And he was saying, you know, like the US, you know, TikTok is where like culture is. You have to be there. This is where this like, you know, this kind of terrain of the next American election will be fought. And I was like scratching my head trying to think of a single British politician that has, you know, their own TikTok account and uses it in any kind of credible way whatsoever you know and, and sort of feels like they're going to reach an audience in any kind of meaningful way so again it's this interesting question about like is that just because they're resource constrained and you know the idea that you're going to have someone you know well that, that most people aren't doing good at doing this stuff for themselves you know american politicians can hire someone to help them out doing this stuff and you know writing good content and filming things in the right way and all the rest of it and, and a lot of british video political content is quite bad and quite stiff and people are not natural on camera and it's almost like they're embarrassed to do it and so on so like that's not a great starting point for running a you know sort of video first youth oriented um kind of you know digital outreach uh type of uh type of program um so yeah i think it's going to be i think it's going to be interesting i think you will see little bits of it but i think a lot of it will be about sort of cross posting you know stuff that would be in your facebook ads will also be on TikTok, will also be in your Instagram and in, in your in your reels and stories and those sorts of things. So I think probably more than having this kind of, you know, how do we how do we win TikTok? Because no one's very good at it, there's not much pressure on anyone to actually do it, if you know what I mean. Like if you're, you know, if you're an American politician, your opponent's good at this stuff, you kind of, oh my God, how are we going to get good at this? We you know we need, we need to get on there and, and, and work out what we're going to do. That impulse, I think, doesn't really exist in the UK. I mean, TikTok's very important. It's very, you know, lots of people use it, it has very big, you know, very big usage numbers and all the rest of it. But it, yeah, no one, no one's really cracked how to use it for politics, I think, in the UK just yet. Do they utilize influencers or anything? Because that's an interesting thing I'm seeing here in the States is that it's not necessarily politicians being on it themselves, but at least least, you know, from the, the Democratic side, you know, the Biden administration had TikTok influencers to the White House, I think is around, I can't remember if it was the infrastructure package or, or what it was. And so it's not necessarily that they're going to be on it themselves, but they're trying to court people who do have audiences on it. Yeah, I mean, I think you see, you, again, you see bits of this stuff, uh, you know, obviously, you know, the UK media market's that much smaller, like follower numbers for those sorts of people are, are, are lower as well. I mean, I suppose, you know, the most really no notorious uh, example of this was actually all the way back in 2015, which was um, Ed Miliband, who was then the leader of the Labour Party, decided he would go on Russell Brand's, you know, video-y, podcast-y, interview-y type thing that he was running at the time. You know, Russell Brand was much less associated with conspiratorial fringe, let alone all of the allegations that have come out since. But, you know, that was somewhere you would go to go and reach that kind of young left-leaning audience. And, and Ed Miliband went there and it was almost as if Russell Brand had sort of granted him an audience, you know, and suddenly this guy who potentially was going to be prime minister a few weeks from then was was given this sort of incredible, you know, once in a lifetime opportunity to go and meet the great Russell Brand or something. And it was it was a bit awkward. It, I think at the time it was seen as a little bit kind of embarrassing and a bit cringeworthy, but it, you know, it, it was fine in a sort of strategic sense, I suppose. 
the question I guess now is again, who are those people? I suspect for politicians, the easiest thing for them to do is to go and meet the other the other ex politicians with these big audiences and do their podcasts and do events. You know, there's a sort of those feel like places where at least you're going to reach people who are kind of politically interested, likely to vote, probably sympathetic to what you um, what you believe. Um, and uh, you know that 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 would be a sort of sensible thing. I think I think probably less likely you're going to see it on the more kind of lifestyle edge of things. You know, again, although there are some kind of like I suppose they're kind of um, not niche because they have really big reach, but sort of younger people focused news. You know, there's a thing called Joe Politics Joe that is a, effectively a bunch of podcasters sat around a table. But you know, I think would probably be a good thing for some UK politicians to to get involved with because it gets really big reach on Instagram and other places like that. So you're you're going to find your audience, but yeah, whether people have got a really, you know, strategic view on how to do it, I would I would wonder. And one of the big debates happening right now is whether or not news and politics has a place on some of these online platforms, right? Like Meta is very vocal about pulling back there. There's been a big debate about the role of threads on all of this, given where Twitter is. And I'm kind of curious if where you land on that and if you've been thinking about that at all. I find it really uh, quite frustrating, actually, when platforms decide they only want to play a partial role in society. You know, I, I sort of maybe maybe I'm still idealistic about what social media was meant to be. And clearly, you know, a lot of that idealism has been sort of uh, washed away. But but, you know, you're uh, if you, you know, these kind of public square type ideas, you know, you can't just be like half the public square. You know, it feels it feels somehow not quite right, you know, that you know uh, i think it's also really problematic the way they've withdrawn from that sort of content right where you you say okay we're all in on it we really care about politics we really care about news we we we're, we're going to go for it uh, and then gradually tune your algorithms away from it withdraw funding pull away and leave the kind of shell of what was behind that kind of fractured you know that fractured thing that that's left and so you know, I, you know, in many respects, yeah, okay, you can say should news organizations have really hitched themselves to these giant platforms in the first place and built so much of their, their sort of traffic strategy around around them. But, you know, I think there is a sort of, they're, they're both sides of that responsibility. And I think it is, it is really problematic. I mean, you know, I think the UK is still very lucky, obviously, we still have the BBC, you know, there is still a large number of newspapers, there's pretty competitive, punchy national media environment for the most part you know yes there is this growing you know sort of um new forms of media podcasts and uh, you know some websites and things like that kind of uh, growing up but you know so there is still a kind of stable central core and a, and a sort of go-to places you know if you need to know what's really happening in the world there is still you know big newspapers that you you can fairly well trust and uh, news at 10 in the evening on the on the national television that everyone can watch but i do think it's an issue yeah that 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 you know we've ended up in this place where yeah there isn't really any engagement around news like politicians you know don't really go onto these platforms to kind of engage people anymore it's not about the two way conversation it's much more broadcast you know you never read the comments because the comments are going to be somewhere where you're being uh, insulted, abused, harassed, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I, 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 I do slightly feel as if the platforms have, have, have just given up and uh, yeah, and that's really a, a frustrating place to, to be. Yeah, that's where I land too. Um, I can't, I think like you, like I haven't given up yet on some of the, how the first 15 years, you know, uh, beginning of the internet of thinking about what it could be. And like, there's still a part of me that's still hanging on to that. And I, I don't know if that's right or wrong, but it's still there. Um, last question for you is the name of this podcast is Impossible Trade-Offs. 
because some of the answers to some of the problems we're facing online aren't easy. And I'm wondering what some of the trade-offs you struggle with most when it comes to the future of technology and its role in politics. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I struggle with a couple of things a lot at the moment, partly one of one of which is, you know, the the, the current topic, the sort of AI-ish type topic. But the other is still this idea of sort of truth in politics and truth in advertising, uh, you know, political advertising. You know, obviously post Brexit in the UK, a lot of people felt, you know, half, well, literally half the people felt very burned by that result and felt like it was, you know, people were misled into believing that Brexit would be a good thing and and that sort of stuff. And, and you know, a lot of those people to this day are very concerned about, you know, they, they've lost a lot of faith in politicians, right? Politicians lie. They, you know, we need, we need some kind of system and mechanism for dealing with that. The other half also feels that politicians lie because they spent several years after the referendum, you know, having to watch these, you know, horrendous negotiations and political stasis and all the rest of it that went rid of it instead of what they felt to be their wish, you know, sort of being, being kind of acted upon. So, you know, you get this stuff where yeah, you know, there's a real crisis of faith in 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 what politicians say, and 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 yet at the same time, people wanting to try and work out what the solution to that is, and you know that that leads to some people calling for regulation and sort of truth in advertising type of stuff, and government getting involved in this, and and those you know a very bad way to go as well. You know, so there's this real trade off there between like how you get politicians to act in a way that is responsible and truthful and you know, but at the same time, how you create the right sorts of um, incentives for doing that, and the right sorts of penalties for if they for if they don't do that, you know, how you how you do that. So I'm always kind of interested in how that sits because a lot of people instinctively would say, yes, we should regulate for truth in you know from politicians, but 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 doing that, a lot of very bad things lie down that route. So we struggle a lot with that and trying to find the right balance for that type of conversation. And then and then there's this AI one, which is. You know, there's a big summit today in the UK, which is about, or at least announcing a big summit in, in the UK today about, you know, AI and safety and, and this sort of stuff. And a lot of the threats that are talked about in that context are to do with democratic harms, right? The flooding, flooding the zone with, you know, AI generated misinformation and we will not be able to believe what we see anymore and all of these things. And, you know, I think these are interesting problems, right? These tools can, can conceivably create all sorts of convincing, uh, you know, content and objects and all the rest of it. But, you know, at the same time, these are still social media problems, you know, they're, they're network problems. And I think there's not enough focus on like trying to get people to say, actually, people still have to see this stuff. They have to find a channel to actually have it get in front of their eyeballs and into their ears and all the rest of it in the first place. And I, I don't think we're thinking about it in terms of distribution enough. And, and ultimately, unfortunately, this is just yet another of these kind of original sins of social media, which is once you have user-generated content and anyone can create anything they want, you know, you, you open up the world to these types of problems. And so, I, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of people coming in from that kind of AI end of things, but actually lots of the solutions to this problem are still very kind of social media. And I think that that trade-off or like how exactly you you phrase and pitch that, I think is a is a is a problem at the moment because I think a lot of attention is going into the the AI end of things. And every time, you know, Sam Altman opens his mouth about the future of democracy or something, people kind of get freaked out. But um, yeah, these for me are still Facebook and Twitter and YouTube type problems as much as anything else. Well Sam, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your perspectives. Thanks, Katie. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Impossible Trade-Offs. You can find the show notes and everything for this podcast on my Substack at anchorchange.substack.com. I want to thank all of my guests for doing this. And this episode was edited by Claude Jennings Jr. I hope you all have a great day and thank you so much. Thank you.